You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the ever merciful, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to the Drive Time Show on Voice of Islam Radio. My name is Musharraf Ahmed, and with me I have Tariq Bajwa. In this show, we will discuss two topics. The first topic will be about immigration, and the second segment we will be talking about the Voice of Islam Radio. Today we mark eight years of Voice of Islam Radio. Um, this will be discussed in the second segment, so please stay with us. To start off, let's delve into the topic of immigration, and I have Tariq Baj was with me, and uh, um, let's start this discuss discussion. Uh, well, I, I think this, uh, thank you very much. Uh, but the first of all, um, the topic is very, very relevant because recently, you know, there has been an announcement uh, about the um, actually the requirement for a visa to come to this country as a skilled worker. And there is, uh, it has been announced that the money or the income they require um, its threshold has been increased, and uh, upon that, there is a you know obviously people are speaking about it, and and that's that's why this topic we have chosen today to just get uh, we'll be speaking to a um, couple of guests who are experts in this field, and we'll be speaking to them um, just to um, they can enlighten us on on this topic uh, that what is the what is the problem. Why? Um, why it is important that you know we do need skilled workers because there are there are um, labor shortages in this country, and if we are putting more, uh, ma- making it more difficult for people to come over, then obviously this shortage will be will increase, and as a result, it has got its own consequences. Um, I mean, when when you look in uh, the different professions, you see a lot of. Um, lack of workers in there as well. Um, just look at NHS, for example, how the NHS is struggling um, with doctors, GPs. And uh, I mean, recently in the news, there was a lot of waiting time in the NHS as well, eight hours waiting time. And it's not just um, NHS, but also other fields, be it engineers, yeah, there's teachers. Of, there's so all, the, all the fields where, where we require skilled workers, you yes. know, you can... Even even there is a shortage of laborers. Even the shortage of you know the builders are the the, the highest you know the most expensive commodity in in, in this uh, you know part of the world. Yes. Um, it's very very ha- hard even to find a plumber. You know you must have had some experience at oh, home. Definitely. That if you need one, it's um, to to get a handyman to get a you know, even for small jobs you you don't find people. Even the cleaners you can't find them yeah. um, because of the current circumstances. There are so many different sort of uh, um, reasons why this has happened. So, um, uh, in today's show, we will we will be speaking more about the challenges and implications of these changes, exploring how they could affect not only the hospitality sector, but also the wider UK labour market in the post-Brexit, post-pandemic land- landscape. Um, because this is this is what it is. We are living in this uh, area where you know. Um, after the Brexit, you have had um, the experience that there there has been loads of problems people have been facing, and there has been economic crisis. The cost of living has definitely increased, and um, a common man uh, is it has become very very difficult to afford even their living. 
and particularly the uh, pandemic, the um, corona pandemic, that has uh, sort of had such an impact on people that they had, they are suffering, and we can see that, and it's not still going. People are still suffering with that. So um, addressing the UK's labor shortage requires a multifaceted approach, starting with an understanding of the specific sectors most affected. Hospitality is one um, sort of sector, agriculture, healthcare, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, they are among the hardest hit, each facing unique challenges in attracting and retaining domestic workers. The pandemic and Brexit have compounded these issues, leading to a significant reduction in the available workforce from the EU, which many sectors had previously relied upon. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, it's it's uh, what you have said. I totally agree with this. And uh, um, if you think about it, the UK's government's response, including changes to immigration policy, aims to manage the flow of workers, but has sparked debate over the balance between controlling immigration and meeting the economic demand for labor. For instance, um, raising the minimum salary there's all for skilled workers, visas restrict access to international talent, impacting sectors like hospitality that are already struggling with staff shortages. And uh, I mean, if you, if, you, if you just think about it, that before Brexit, many skilled workers, they were coming from different countries to the UK and they were helping the, um, the UK government the economy for the UK government, um, they, they were helping the workflow and uh, the shortages, they're fulfilling those shortages. But because of the difficulty to get into the UK, because of the new law, because of Brexit, it's it's much harder for them to come here and work. Um, it's, it's not that easy. Even those who are working, you see, the normal worker, I mean, um, even the professionals, the cost of living is such that if you look at it, they are finding it hard even to pay their bills. Yes. You know, the uh, the normal daily routine requirements of your bills of gas, electricity, water, you know, after, and if you have to, on top of that, if you have to pay your mortgage, you know, the, um, the interest and, rate and has gone up. And the fuel prices as well. Yeah, interest <laughs> rate has gone up. And those who are paying mortgages, many of them have to abandon their houses just because of that. They can't afford it. Either mm-hmm. they can eat or, you know, make their school, uh, kids go to schools and afford their, uh, you know, requirements or, you know, they pay the mortgage. And mm-hmm. obviously they have no choice. And some of them, they and and even a young uh, sort of professionals who are coming into getting a job and they can't even not only they can't think of, they can't dream of having a house. Of a, the prices have gone so high. If you look 20, 30 years ago, people were able to buy houses and get easy mortgages. But as you have mentioned, even now when newly married couples and yeah. n- newly graduated, they can't afford anything right now. And and on, on top of the, that, uh, you know, these skilled workers... If uh, you know, if they are in, in short, if we are not having enough numbers, their prices will go high as well, mm-hmm. and that is going to have an impact on the on the locals who are living here, because these people obviously they have if they are coming to work here, they are going to live here, mm-hmm. and in order to live live here, then they need to be able to afford to live here. It's a chain effect, isn't it? If you don't have enough manpower, enough workers. 
then the workers who are already working, they will increase the prices, Absolutely. which will have yeah. an end effect on the user that they won't be yeah, able to service afford user, it. Yeah, the service user affected. Mm-hmm. And again, um, who suffers? The suffer um, sufferers are the, the middle class people. You know, those who are um, you know, who are poor people, they, they can have their tax credits, they can have the benefits, they can, but uh, the, the middleman who is uh, neither very rich so that he can afford it, who who, do, uh, who are not li- like really hardly affected because they, um, they have got uh, the loopholes where they can um, pay less tax. Mm. But the middleman who is like a, have a salaried job, who is uh, a professional, who is a uh, um, it, he is finding it very, very difficult. And, and what is happening as a result is that the country is suffering because of the brain drain. People are going away. People are going to Canada, to Australia. Yes, yes. And wherever, you know, they, they find it it's easier because if they can't afford to live here comfortably, uh, you know, despite all their hard work throughout their life, you know, many, many years spending in various fields into the universities, getting all the education, and yet um, a plumber and a, and a laborer, I don't have anything against those, you know, mm-hmm. workers because they work hard. But yes. but at least in this country, this is a good thing. And is if we compare, like back home, we had, um, you know, the hardly a uh, laborer could hardly ever think of getting his own house or living in his own house but here you know you you see that there is equality they are living in the same houses their children are going to the same school as yours are this is which is a good thing which is the islamic teachings according to the islamic teachings mm-hmm. but the thing is that this economic crisis has caused people to suffer not only suffer but this this uh, you know the the response from the government including the changes to the immigration policy it aims to manage the flow of workers, but it has sparked debate over the balance between controlling immigration and meeting the economic demand for labor. Hmm. For instance, raising the minimum salary threshold for skilled worker visas restricts access to international talent, impacting sectors like hospitality that are already struggling with staff shortages. Yes. You see, if you are already short and on top of that, you are rather than making it easy for them to come because you need them. Uh, if you, you're making it difficult, then, you know, you, you, you are cutting your own throat, aren't you? And if, if, if you think about it, the, the labor shortage is not just about numbers. It's about the quality of jobs on offer and the appeal to the workforce, UK workforce. Many positions remain unfulfilled due to the perception of low pay poor working condition and limited career progression. And this suggests a deeper issue with the labor market, a disconnect between the expectations of employers and potential employees. And these immigrants which come to the UK or used to come to the UK, they were actually doing those kind of jobs. For example, um, you, you could see that the carpenters, they were mostly immigrants. Um, just not just carpenters, plumbers as well, or even the people who used to collect rubbish um, for the council. It's it's mostly immigrants, but now there's a lack. Even nurses, not uh, not just those jobs, but even nurses here or GPs. There's a huge shortage of nurses as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. So and, and and they are struggling to get their salaries raised. Yeah, <laughs> I mean this has been recently. The st- doctors have been on on strike just just because for the last like t- ten twelve years they have had no rise in their salary and yeah. and they have to face this uh, increased cost of I living. Don't, I don't know if you have realized, but after Brexit, um, there were a lot of strikes going on, the tube drivers and TFL. Many, many strikes which haven't had happened before. 
obviously the people are going to cry and but particularly you know if if the 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 government is uh, i mean it, it looks like the government is not aware of the the, the problem and and that's why the, you know people have to raise their voice to make them uh, realize that you know in this position they shouldn't uh, make such decisions which make it difficult for people to um, to come and uh, uh, work in this country so rather than making it easy they should uh, if they are making it difficult then then that is that is going to have an impact on on, yeah. on that uh, tariq bajaj i think we have um, a caller i'm waiting do you want to introduce the caller um, yeah uh, welcome is professor bridget anderson She's a director of migration mobilities Bristol and professor of migration mobilities and citizenship. She's interested in the relation between migration, race and nation historically and in the contemporary world. She's particularly interested in how immigration laws um make particular kinds of employment relationships. So, uh welcome professor Bridget Anderson. Thank you for joining us today. Oh thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you and I hope that uh, our uh, listeners will be very keen to hear from you. So we got a few questions uh, from you. Uh first first of all, how does immigration contribute to the UK's economy particularly in filling job vacancies and supporting industries with a high demand for labor? Yeah, I mean that's quite a big question because <laughs> it raises the question of what we mean by migrant and what we mean by economy right so uh you know we anyone who lives in this country pays tax including vat and most people work and then there's also the question of who counts as a migrant um so people think that they know who a migrant is but actually if you look at um the definitions that is government data they give you some surprising um they give you some surprising people so for instance because the definition of migrant in the statistics tends to be someone who's born abroad so who would have thought that even when he was prime minister boris johnson was for statistical purposes a migrant mm-hmm. i think it's just we've got to be careful about like easy answers so but so more specifically on this on your question about labor demands um it's true that my new arrivals tend to work in certain kinds of jobs that are often badly paid with antisocial hours and demanding so the ones that people usually talk about are social care hospitality agriculture and food processing and then things like cleaning car washing and so on and as you were talking about brexit and it's certainly true that um there used to be uh especially in low wage construction there was a lot of um people from eastern european countries who many of whom have um have actually now left so there are now quite severe job uh, labor shortages in sectors especially sectors where as i say people are working antisocial hours um and which are low waged okay thank you um can you discuss the historical context of immigration laws in the uk and how they have shaped employment relationships for migrant workers 
Yeah, I'm really pleased you asked this question because I think people tend to think of immigration controls as a tap. So it's like, oh, we need, you know, 100,000 workers. Let's turn on the tap and let 100,000 people come in and then switch it off. Actually, immigration controls are much more like a mold than a tap. So they make certain kinds of workers and employment relations. I mean, even if you think about it, Employment laws won't let you, as an employer, decide, I'm only going to employ, I don't know, women aged over 21. Like, you can't say that if you're advertising for a job. Employment law won't let you, uh, except in very particular circumstances. You couldn't say, I'm only going to consider workers who are born in this country or that country. But immigration laws allow employers to do that. So that, you know, so first off, it shapes like who's able to come for certain jobs. Then we have to think, well, if people can only stay temporarily or if they can only stay in the country, if they remain with their employer, then this produces certain kinds of relationships. So we often hear about the ways that employers can take advantage of undocumented people but immigration laws and rules produce dependence on employers as sponsors. So if your employment relationship breaks down, then you lose the right to stay. Now, now I don't want to say that all employers are, you know, abusive and exploitative, not at all. But, you know, and I've spoken to a lot of employers, many of whom are very good employers, and they'll often, you know, tell you that migrant workers have a better work ethic, they go the extra mile, they're more friendly, you know, they have often very positive things to say about migrant workers. And that, but perhaps that's because they have to. I mean, that's why, sorry, that's why my, that migrants have to. So mm. I, way back in, in 2004-05, I did some interviews with employers um, before and after EU enlargement before EU enlargement when say the Polish farm workers um, were dependent on the on their employers for their visas the employers were all saying how marvelous Polish people were how they came from a very hard-working culture and so on and so forth um, and then when I interviewed those same employers a year later after brexit when the um, Polish people were no longer dependent on those employers for visas the employers suddenly said, oh, Ukrainians are much harder workers than Polish people. I don't think it was anything to do with the culture and being hardworking or not. It was simply to do with the, with the ways that um, uh, immigration laws made people dependent for, um, on people, on their employers for visas. So immigration laws are imagined as protecting low-wage labor markets. But it's much more complicated than that. Sometimes immigration laws can make migrants more desirable workers than British workers. Hmm. Yeah, Professor, um, thank you for your answer. Um, the next question is, in what ways do immigration policies impact the types of jobs available to migrant workers? And how do these policies intersect with issues of race and nation? <laughs> You keep doing such good questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I sort of talked a bit about how, you know, uh, immigration can require you to work, 
for a certain employer in a particular job. Um, but it's important to remember that immigration policies aren't only about migrant workers, right? You could say they're more generally about asylum. They're also about spouses and partners and students. And all of those, um, all of those visa categories have a particular, like create particular kinds of workers. So most asylum seekers don't have permission to work. Uh, and as you probably know, they've got fourteen, forty-nine pounds eighteen, I think it is, to buy food, toiletries, travel, and clothes for the week. Yes. And if they can't get by, then they have to work. And so the kind of work that they'll have to do will be cash in hand, informal work. Or you can have students who can only work for twenty hours a week in term time, so they will go into part-time work. Hmm. Um, and then you have other ways in which you know you can have very heavy income requirements if you want to be joined by your family from abroad, which might mean that you take on, you know, you might take on additional jobs because you've got pressure to get more money, you know. So there's lots of complicated ways and policies kind of push people often into very harsh um, uh, conditions of work. Yes. And then this question about race and nation, uh, which really basically I think you need a whole program on that. But I think just to kind of start off thinking about it, it's like your listeners off thinking about it, immigration laws are exempt from race equality requirements because they just couldn't work otherwise. Hmm. But it's very important for the legitimacy of immigration laws that they're not seen as racist. So, you know, so people will bend over backwards to say, no, immigration laws are not racist. Now, it's not legal to discriminate on the grounds of race, but it is legal. In fact, in some cases, it's re you're required to discriminate on the grounds of nationality. Okay. I mean, that's what passport checks are all about. So, and let's remember that belonging to the nation, how do you belong to the nation? You belong through ancestry and you belong through culture. And that's exactly how race is imagined. So we can't say that this idea of nationality is race-free. And you can't say, you know, oh, to say you can't work in this job because of where you're born is something that's completely innocent of race thinking. But the language of nationality hides this, and I think it hides it very effectively. Thank you, Professor. Yes. Um, the next question um, I have is that how can policymakers and employers create more inclusive and equitable employment opportunities for migrant workers, considering the intersectionally of race, immigration status and employment rights? So I suppose two things about that. So first off, I think employment opportunities and rights have to be inclusive and equitable for all, not only for migrants. But migrants in the coal mine, you know, when you see what's happening to migrants, don't feel relieved and think, oh, well, that's just happening to them. Because in the end, it will happen to everyone. So, you know, there's this kind of, I think, often imagined a zero-sum game. Oh, it's bad for migrants, so it's going to be good for citizens. No, it's often bad for citizens as well but especially marginalised citizens and especially ethnic minorities. And secondly, I think we have to look not just at about policymakers and employers in terms of creating these um, opportunities and rights, but also workers and trade unions. 
And I think there's, I suppose I would say, three basic recommendations. So first off, there is far more time and money spent in this country spent on enforcing immigration controls than is spent on enforcing employment rights. Absolutely. Okay, let's change that. Why don't we spend much more in, on enforcing employment rights? We need to have a firewall between immigration and employment protections because at the moment, you know, if you do have an abusive or exploitative employer, you're not going to report them to the um, and, and claim your employment rights if you're worried that you're going to get chucked out of the country um, as a consequence. And finally, I think we have to allow workers to change employers. I think tying workers to employers is always a bad idea. And for the reasons that I said before, I don't think it's good for citizens. I don't think it protects low-wage labour markets. I think it makes employers prefer migrants. So what's good for migrant workers is also good for citizen workers. Right. Okay. So, you know, this new immigration rule that is to raise the minimum salary for skilled worker visas, um, you know, the threshold has been increased to nearly 50 percent. So obviously this is going to have an, a big impact on getting these skilled workers to the country. So how does the current political climate and public discourse around immigration influence employment opportunities and workplace dynamics for migrant workers in the U.K.? Yeah, well, I mean, the skill, the, the, the increase in the skilled worker, I mean, it's just a disgrace. And it's almost as if the government wants to just, I don't know, turn around and shoot employers in the foot. You know, I always thought <laughs> the Conservative government was supposed to be pro-employers, but this doesn't seem to me to be particularly pro-employers to put this kind of constraint when we're already experiencing labour shortages. Um and I think that more generally, the kind of, and this is, you know, in a way, this is an example of being negative about migrants, skilled or otherwise, becomes a problem for Britain more generally, because we need workers. And so it's, so what's bad for migrants is also bad for all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think, as I say, it's kind of particularly bad, these kind of but the current political climate is particularly bad for people also who are imagined as not belonging to the nation, you know, because they're the wrong religion or because they're an ethnic minority. And so we have to kind of recognise that migrant is like a very amorphous category and that, you know, people easily get labelled as second-generation migrants when they have never even crossed the border in their lives. So there is a way in which it, it sort of starts affecting negative, uh, it starts affecting racialized citizens. And I think the thing that we have to watch for in the current is kind of like a, sort of going along with the logic. So the logic which says there are some good people and there are some bad people. There are some highly skilled who we want and there are some low skilled that we don't want. And there are, you know, there are now people have got, I don't know, so I've been talking to people who've been resident in the UK a long time. I'll sometimes hear them say, oh, you know, we, we were really hardworking when we came. We're not like the people that come now who are really just after benefits and who are kind of lazy. 
or, you know, we are really hardworking migrants and the problem is asylum seekers. You know, there's this logic that this person deserves more than that person rather than thinking actually things are getting really bad for everyone and the last thing we need is more division and more hierarchies. Okay, thank you very much. I, I think I mean the, the steps being taken are exactly opposite to what's happening. So yeah. uh, my next question would be looking ahead, what are the key challenges and opportunities in shaping immigration policies and employment relationships in the UK to ensure fair treatment and equal opportunities for all workers, regardless of their immigration status or background? It's really difficult because if I'm honest, I don't see, I see far more challenges than opportunities. I'm not seeing that the, I'm not seeing that the opposition Labour Party is coming up with anything inspirational or kind of um, new thinking around immigration and work, which is um, very disappointing. Um, so I guess I think we have to, you know, these key challenges and opportunities aren't just going to happen. I think maybe we are going to have to make them. Um, and that's up to all of us. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Professor Bridget Anderson. Now, I think it was uh, quite good to, to talk to you and uh, I think a very interesting one as well and the policies and what we can... But uh, all we are doing is just to highlight this issue that um, and so that people can think about it. And uh, so thank you very much for joining the Voice of Islam uh, this evening and uh, I hope that we'll be seeing you again sometimes. Yeah, no, thank you for asking me. Hope thank to speak to you again. Thank you. Have a nice evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that was uh, Professor Bridget Anderson. She's the Director of Migration Mobilities, Bristol, and Professor of Migration Mobilities and Citizenship. Uh, and obviously she has an inter uh, uh, interest in relationship between migration, race, and nation historically and in the contemporary world. So she has spoken very well about the policies and how um, you know the UK government can be helped by looking into the um, issues which are uh, currently um, the country is facing and uh, trying to f find out the solutions rather than getting into more trouble with the um, sort of policies. So obviously um, the UK government's uh, current response, which you have heard that you know, they are raising the um, the requirement of the visa, the salary which is required so that you can get a skilled worker visa that has been um, according to one rule that has been raised and that is not being welcomed by many many fields many many of the uh, you know those who require these people the sea skilled workers so the labor shortage is uh, not just about numbers it's about the quality of jobs on offer and their appeal to the uk workforce as i mentioned earlier that many of the people who are professionals who are skilled workers they are leaving the country just because of the policies here because they can't they are not paid um, reasonably well so that they can survive in this country um, and also um, there are other 
uh, factors as well, which are they are being influenced by other people, and um, particularly if you see that at this time when we are, um, you know, going to um, see the elections very soon, then the policies they are sometimes they are related more um, into the short-term solutions of the problems, and which can create later on on the long term they are not good for the country. So many positions at the moment you see they remain unfilled due to the. Uh, perceptions of low pay, poor working conditions, and limited career progression. This suggests a deeper issue uh, within the labor market, a disconnect between the expectations of employers and potential employees. Yeah, I mean, um, Tariq Bajwa, we just spoke to Professor Bridges as well, and she was speaking about um, race. A question was asked to her, and I would just like to mention one verse from the Holy Quran um, which addresses this and uh, God Almighty he states in the Holy Quran that Ya ayyuhal nasu inna khalaknakum min zakarin wa unsa wa ja'alnakum shu'uban wa qaba'ila lita'arafu inna akramakum indallahi atqakum inna la alimun khabir and this is the verse um, our, the recent World Cup which happened this is the verse which was recited just before the World Cup as well which translates as O mankind, we have created you from a male and a female, and we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes, that you may recognize one another. Verily, the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is the most righteous among you. Surely Allah is all-knowing, all aware. So this verse basically just states that we shouldn't differentiate between different people, because this this differentiation is just the, the race and tribes which God has created. They're just to um, recognize the different tribes. But God only sees one thing. He sees the righteousness within your heart. So immigrants, if we differentiate them because of their race, that's wrong. We should give everyone the same kind of a, opportunity according to their skills and sets which they have, which they bring into the country. If we follow this rule, then there won't be any shortage within the country in any sector. If, for example, a doctor is coming, and I've heard myself about doctors coming from the Middle East, and here they're working as bus drivers. If we are giving them the same opportunity to come here and study according to the level to become a doctor here or to complete the education here, they should be able, they should be given that right so they can um, become a doctor and actually um, work in the hospital rather than becoming bus drivers. So we should use their skills and set which they have. Um, just continuing um, this uh, this conversation further, Tariq um, Baja, economic impacts of the labor shock are wide ranging from increased operational costs for businesses to potential inflationary pressures on the economy. These challenges highlight the need for comprehensive strategy that includes not only short challenges highlighted but also um, long-term fixes through immigration but also long-term solutions focused on improving job quality and worker satisfaction and uh, from an Islamic perspective the dignity of labor and the ethical treatment of workers are paramount the Holy Quran and Hadith emphasize fair treatment equitable wages and uh, uh, the importance of fulfilling one's responsibilities to society and its members. For example, 
the Quran states, and I quote from chapter 53, verse 40, and that man will have nothing but what he strives for, highlighting the value of hard work and the importance of ensuring fair compensation for it. Moreover, Islam encourages the community to support one another, as seen in the Hadith, which is a saying of uh, the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He says, the believers in their affection, mercy and compassion for each other is that of a body. When any limb aches, the whole body reacts with sleeplessness and fever. So the society as a whole, it works as, as one body. And unless the, the status is such that you are feeling each other's pain, um, when you feel the pain for somebody who is suffering, then obviously then you try to find a solution for that. And uh, it's, very, it's, it's very, very important that the society, you have a relationship with each other in such a way that, uh, you know, that you... If you see that somebody is suffering, you go for it. You go out out of the way so to help them as well. The principle, um, this uh, this principle, it can be applied to the labor market, emph- emphasizing the need for a supportive environment that values every worker's contribution and ensures their well-being. In addressing the UK's labor shortage, there is a clear opportunity to draw on Islamic teachings to advocate for a more ethical sustainable and inclusive approach to workforce management. This would involve not only filling immediate vacancies, but also creating a labor market that respects the dignity of all workers and offers them meaningful opportunities. Yes, um, I mean, we have an audio available. I would like to play that audio um, of the world wide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He mentioned at the 43rd annual Ahmadiyya Muslim convention in Germany, the importance of hosting countries to aid migrants to integrate within their societies. And I will I will play that uh, audio now. Ago, it was reported that the German government was considering a new policy whereby asylum seekers would be required to do a year's community service upon settling in Germany. Some critics are already claiming that this is merely a form of cheap labor and will not help the integration process. However, in my view, any person who is serving his local community is integrating through that very service. Indeed, the term community service is positive because it instills a belief that it is the duty of each person to serve their society and to help the members of the community. Accordingly, the German government deserves praise rather than criticism for this policy. Nevertheless, the responsibilities of a host government are not limited to arranging community service. Rather, they should also guide the immigrants in a way that they are able to start contributing as quickly as possible to society. If the immigrants do not have the skills to enter the job market, they should be provided with some form of training or apprenticeships so that they can soon develop those skills. Any costs incurred in such training will be a valuable investment for the future of the nation. In terms of security, if there is any doubt or suspicion raised about the character or backgrounds of certain immigrants, the authorities should be vigilant 
and monitor them until they are satisfied that they do not pose a risk to society. Some may consider this an intrusive policy, yet protecting society from, uh, from danger and maintaining the peace and security of the nation are paramount objectives for any government. Um, thank you. Um, Sheriff, we, we were listening to the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community about uh, immigration. Um, uh, we have our next guest uh, who is online, Ravishan uh, Rahil Muthia. He is a communication director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. He has campaigned and volunteered with migrants and refugees rights groups fighting to ensure those who aren't given a voice are heard. He's here uh, with us. Ravishan, welcome to the Drive Time show here on Voice of Islam. Hello. Hello, yes. Thank uh, yes, yes Ravishan, thank you for joining us. Uh, um, uh, this is a uh, drive time show from Radio Voice of Islam. So we have got uh, our uh, guest Ravishan Rahel Mutia. I just introduced uh, him to you. Uh, Ravishan, can you provide an overview of the work and mission of the Joint Council for the Welfare Immigrants, this is JCWI, and how it advocates for the rights and well-being of immigrants in the UK? Yes, so we're a migrant rights charity. We've been helping people make this country their home for over 55 years. You know, JCWI, we have a three-way approach to fighting for the rights of migrants. So our legal team provides critical legal aid to those who other sources of help with navigating the UK's immigration system. And the laws that make the lives of those seeking safety on our shores a misery. And our communications team, which I'm a part of, works to educate the public and general media on the truth behind the tabloid headlines that demonize those seeking sanctuary. So we know that UK government policy has for a long time been unwelcoming and hostile to those who should who don't who should be welcoming. You know, people move, they always have and they always will. And the vast majority of people in this country welcome the richness that this brings to our communities. But our government policies do not reflect this. You know, instead they make it incredibly difficult for people to come here and seek safety or to work here or for any other reason. So thanks to our team, we have successfully managed to bring families back together. We prevented those recently granted asylum from being forced onto the street and we've helped victims of human trafficking restart their lives, the citizens of this country. So that's what we've done at Bishop Um Thank you, Roshan. Can you bring your mic a bit closer because there are, we have a, a bit of interruption with the voice. Thank you. So uh, my next question is, what are some of the most pressing challenges and barriers faced by immigrants and refugees in accessing their rights and essential services in the UK? And how does JCWI address the issues? Well, I mean, we, we know that there's some really basic rights for everyone that the UK government has ensured don't apply to people that move to the UK. So one of those basic rights is the right to work. You know, it's a basic right for everyone to be able to work. But while you're in the immigration system, and even when the Home Office acknowledges that you can stay here, we see more and more people cannot get jobs. 
whether that's because electronic systems have glitches, which means people lose jobs and then are, they're suspended, uh, or, or other issues, which mean that the government do not allow people to work. So we've seen recently in, in the last uh, few weeks, the government has raised the minimum income requirement for people to work in this country. They've raised it to 38 uh, £38,000, mm-hmm. which is a massive amount of money and it's above the UK average wage. And they're saying if you want to come to the country and work, you have to be earning that amount of money. It's just, you know, it's ludicrous. Another basic right that the government is, you know, really stopping people from accessing is health care. As a migrant, you know, you're questioned regarding your status. Migrants don't have access to some GP practices. These are practices that may be reluctant to do checks. They don't understand documents. And therefore, they end up denying basic human rights, the basic human right to access health care. And again, we've seen recently that the government has increased the health charge that migrants have to pay to access the NHS. So how we address these issues is we help our clients. We One, we campaign in Parliament to push back against this. And two, where we can, we provide frontline support to our clients to ensure they're able to, you know, sometimes find housing where they need to or to pressure local councils to ensure that people have the, the amenities that they need. Um, the next question is, what role does public awareness and education play in promoting empathy and understanding towards immigrants and refugees? And how does JCWI engage in public outreach and awareness raising activities? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a great question. I think public awareness and education is so, so important. You know, when people across this country hear the stories of our clients, so whether it's from how they're housed in this country to how our clients are forced to relive the trauma of why they fled their home country, to how most people, most of our clients, they want to start a new life. They want to be part of our communities and societies. And when people hear these stories, they realize that it's not just about numbers. It's not just about the hatred that we hear from our government and our ministers. It's about real people with real stories. And like I said, you know, a lot of our clients, they want to start a new life in this country. They want to be part of our communities. They want to build their lives and the lives of loved ones. So, you know, ensuring that people across the country know this and that they know the personal stories is so important. Mm -hmm. And the way that we do this is, of course, through, you know, speaking to uh, radio stations like yourself, ensuring that people across the country hear this message, but also through carrying out events in local communities. We hold, we hold workshops, training events. We want to ensure that we speak to people within our communities and share these stories because that is what matters most. Okay, thank you. And what are some key areas for improvement in the UK's immigration policies and practices to better protect the rights and dignity of immigrants and refugees? And how can individuals and communities support these efforts? Well, I, I mean, I think communities are doing a great deal of work. You know, I, I know communities are going above and beyond. We saw with the Ukrainian people welcoming. I know that, you know, lawyers going into communities and help people uh, to highlight deadlines and help people find important documents. So I think our communities are doing a lot of key things. I think, you know, as we as a community, we should continue to come together. I think it's a massive help to organizations like ours 
when people look up JCWI, when they come and they support our work and they ensure that we can continue to carry out our work as best as we do. Then the other thing is, you know, in terms of the key areas for improvement, there's massive key areas for improvement. Firstly, as we mentioned already, the government are stripping migrants of opportunities. People are left in limbo. You know, the government say that they are dealing with asylum, the asylum seeker backlog, but they haven't. You know, there are some really complex places that people to work with, and they take years to resolve. And we know that the Home Office, they can be used to create a backlog in the process. One issue that uh, could be solved is in the system. I think your signal is breaking a bit. Yeah, you know, another massive issue that could be solved is ensuring that people have the right to work. It's a really important that we have a functioning asylum system and people have the right to work. Right, just one last question, uh, Ravishan, is looking ahead, what are the main priorities and goals for JCWI and its ongoing work to promote social justice and equality for immigrants and refugees in UK? Yeah, so, you know, one of the main priorities for us is to shift the public narrative. As we mentioned, it's no secret that there's been hostility from the government towards people who move to this country. But we know across the country that the public, our communities, have held strong in their support for migrants, and this must continue. We want to continue doing that. We've been battling the Rwanda bill since its inception, and we continue to do that. It, the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom has ruled that the Rwanda, Rwanda is an unsafe country, and the UK is still accepting asylum on Rwanda. So this makes little sense when, uh, you know, the, if it's a truly safe country, it wouldn't make sense for the UK government to be accepting refugees and asylum seekers from the country. Uh, so we want to be clear that this policy can't continue and we will keep fighting against that and we want our communities and people across the country to come together. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ravishan, uh, for joining us this afternoon. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. And I think that we have got some more insight into um, you know what is being done about the immigrants and the, and that there are some uh, obviously you're doing a good work and uh, we all wish you well in in your work as uh, and so that uh, we uh, we are like facing difficulty and at this difficulty we're creating more difficulties because of the policies and and uh, I hope that uh, somebody listens to that and that's the purpose of the voice of Islam to raise uh, all voices thank you for joining us this afternoon thank you very much for having me thank you have a nice evening bye so this was uh, Ravishan Rahil Mutia, a communication director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Uh, and of course, we have uh, heard from him his uh, um, view, point of view about the immigrants, what are the problems they are facing and how the policies are affecting um, the uh, workforce in this country, particularly the skilled workforce. And with the, um, the this new rule, obviously, is going to affect that um, we, uh, from the Islamic point of view, obviously the Islam teaches us that everyone, um, this is one of the hadiths, that every one of you is a shepherd and he's responsible for his flock. So obviously all these, the, it is the responsibility of the leaders to enact policies that protect and benefit all members of society including immigrants. So it's crucial that immigration policy do not exploit workers, but instead offer them protection, fair wages, and opportunities for growth.
so by incorporating the Islamic principles into the discussion on immigration and labor shortages, the UK has the opportunity uh, to develop policies that not only address economic needs, but also enhance the ethical and social fabric of the country. Such an approach ensures that immigration policy is a reflection of a society that values justice, compassion, and the collective good. So that was our first hour program. Um, uh, we have discussed in details about uh, you know how this uh, rule is, is going to be uh, having an impact in the uh, workforce which is coming. Um, to the UK, which which is very much needed because of the shortages, and uh, of course we you have listened to our uh, guests as well who have given their ideas about that. Um, in the next hour, we we will be speaking on a very interesting topic and particularly it's very dear to Voice of Islam because it is about the Radio Voice of yes. Islam yes. which was started eight years ago and we'll be um, uh, talking and we'll be uh, talking to a lots of guests who who are actually the producers of various uh, shows uh, which are related to Voice of Islam and it will be interesting to uh, listen to them uh, firsthand what is what has their been experience been and how they have uh, moved on uh, from what they were. Um, so please uh, uh, join us in the, in the second hour. Um, we will have a short break. We'll listen to the news and then we'll come back. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show on Voice of Islam Radio. Before the break, we were discussing about immigration and we had two callers on. In this segment, we will discuss eight years since Voice of Islam Radio was integrated by His Holiness, the 5th Khalif, Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, the 5th Khalif of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And since then, we have been transmitting 24-7 from our studios in South London, from within a mosque complex to London, and now expanded to nine cities, which include Bradford, Manchester, Cardiff, Londonderry, Cardiff, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Leeds, and most recently in Birmingham. And this isn't a first, as next door to where we are sitting right now is MTA International. It's an international TV channel, st uh, TV international station that broadcasts 10, to d 10 different channels on YouTube and via phone apps and a smart TV all around the world. So MTA International, that is a Muslim tel television Ahmadiyya. Um, it, it's an international station, as you just heard. It's emerged in 1994 with the aim of providing a positive alternative in the broadcasting uh, world and was the brainchild of His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed. And ever since its inception, in, um, ever since its uh, inception, MTA has been a unique channel in many respects. Its focus lies in producing programs that can be enjoyed by people of all ages and at all times. It recognizes that television plays a significant role in the world and has 
accordingly um, devoted itself to applying this influence positively for the purpose of educating its viewers. MTA's future is not dependent upon commercial sp sponsorship or license fees, thus allowing it to concentrate on producing a variety of programs on a range of subjects for its viewers in all parts of the world without sacrificing standards. And this too is the ethos behind Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting 24 hours a day, the station aims to give everyone a space for discussion for people of faith. No faith or just those with an interest in special peace and greater justice. So to begin, um, let's take you back eight years ago on the day uh, 7th of February 2016 and hear the inauguration of Voice of Islam Radio. Let's listen to this audio. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu sharika lahu wa ashhadu anna muhammadan abduhu rasuluhu amma ba'du fa'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem Bismillahirrahmanirrahim With the grace of Allah Today I am inaugurating The Voice of Islam radio station The purpose of the Voice of Islam Is to inform people Of the true teachings of Islam And to make it abundantly clear That Islam's teachings perfectly conform and relate to the needs of every era and every person. God willing, the listeners of this radio station will come to recognize that Islam's teachings are of peace, love and compassion for all mankind. We, Ahmadi Muslims, believe that the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadiyan, peace be upon him, was sent by Allah the Almighty in accordance with the prophecies of the founder of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad And so we believe our founder to be the promised Messiah and Imam Mahdi, the guided one. And we further believe that he was sent to this world by God Almighty to draw the attention of mankind towards recognizing their creator and towards fulfilling the rights of one another. Based upon the teachings of Islam, the promised Messiah Peace and blessing of Allah be upon him once said, Always remember that I consider the sphere of love and compassion to be extremely vast, and so do not isolate any individual or nation. Unlike the ignorant people of today, I do not say that you should limit your love to Muslims alone. Certainly not. Rather, I say that you must show love and compassion 
to all of God's creation, no matter who it is, whether he or she is a Hindu, a Muslim, or anyone else. I never like it when people try to limit their sympathy and love to only their own people. And so I admonish you again and again to never limit the scope of your compassion. Further, the Prophet Messiah, peace be upon him, said, Certainly, you can never acquire true righteousness until you spend out of that wealth which you cherish and value for the sake and welfare of humanity. You must fulfill the rights of the poor and the deprived, and you must love and help those who are vulnerable and stay away from all forms of wrong and waste. Therefore, it is the message of humanity that the voice of Islam will broadcast to its listeners each and every day. In a clear and detailed manner, this radio station will enlighten the world about the true teachings of Islam. And it will manifest the fact that Islam is a religion that teaches Muslims in all countries, in all areas, to join together with the different groups in their societies in an effort to unite mankind in peace and to help their nations prosper and flourish. Certainly, Islam is that religion which, on the basis of its religious teachings and traditions, calls on Muslims to integrate in the very best possible way into their local societies. May Allah bless the voice of Islam radio station in every respect and enable it to fulfill its objectives to spread the true and peaceful teachings of Islam and most importantly to make the people realize their duties towards their creator, the one and omnipotent Allah. This was the video clip we listened from His Holiness, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, inaugurating the Voice of Islam radio station eight years ago. And as we will go through today's show, one thing will become very clear. Um, our volunteers are passionate about producing shows for all regardless of gender, race or age. So it makes sense our team reflects that. So one of our shows is completely managed, edited and recorded and presented by women. And that is a very popular Faith in Focus show and Sisters on Air. Let's take a listen to when we spoke to Faith in Focus head producer Sharmin Butt. So now on the line we have uh, Sharmin Butt. She's the head producer for the Faith in Focus show as well as the Sisters on Air show which air on Voice of Islam throughout the day. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Um, so I think the first question we'd really like to ask you is that Faith in Focus is one of the shows that's been on air since the very beginning of Voice of Islam back in 2016. Could you tell us about the purpose of this show and how it's grown over the last eight years? Yes, of course. Um, we were very fortunate to be given this show back in December 2015. So we started, as you said, in uh, January 2016. Um, the Faith in Focus, as it's it's evident from its name, has its focal point, really, discussing matters of faith. But uh, the way we do this is we talk about any subject under the sun, if you like. 
um, for example, from healthy eating to travel to social issues like isolation, um, old age, um, care. Um, but we bring a perspective of um, faith to the narrative, to the discussion. So that's 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 the purpose of the show, and that's how the show was has been developing through oh. these eight years. We have tried to talk about a wider and wide tried to wider and wider spectrum of issues that and we focus on we've been lately focusing on matters young people want to have a conversation about so things like FOMO which FOMO or whatever mm -hmm. fear of missing out and incorporating as many ideas in our shows as we can so that we have something to suit listeners of you know varied interests but as I said earlier this is done with an angle of faith. Oh, brilliant. Sounds like there's something there for everybody. So do you think that, and I think one of the things about Voices, um, sorry, Faith and Focus is that it is entirely produced by women. So it's produced by women, it's edited by women and presented by them as well. Does that give a different perspective to your show compared to other radio shows that might be out there? Well, I hope so. I hope it does. It's it's not for me to say if it does or not, but I I do. Yes, I do hope it does. Um, you know, as I just said, we we try and have as many varied topics for our uh, show, a faith and focus show, as we can, so that we may suit all interests. So here again, we hope the female perspective on any of the the topics we talk about that like journalism, disinformation, sports, whatever. We hope it brings a distinct aspect of looking at things from a female perspective. So, yes, very much hope so. That's that's why the show was uh, sort of uh, started and it's been developed as such, yes. Oh, brilliant. And another show that you are the head producer of is uh, Sisters on Air, which I think was uh, came into production a little bit further down the line. Why did you start production on this show and does it differ to Faith in Focus or is it the same sort of aspect you're covering? This is a new show. I see. I say new, although it started just before the COVID time. So, but it's still, it's an infancy as compared to Faith in Focus. So Sisters on Air is also run by an all-female team, but the slight difference, uh, it may be Slight or maybe it may be quite a point, a sort of sharp focal difference is that um, owing to its name as Sisters in Air on Air, we all our shows are centered around matters of female interests or are specifically about women. So all um, our team writers and researchers, when they start come up with a new idea, they are sort of they're sure they know that they have to write from a very distinct fem female aspect, and it should be very quite clear within the script and within the show that we are sisters on air, talking about um, sisterhood and uh, all things female. Yes, from a female perspective, really. Yes. Mm, very much needed. And I think that brings me quite nicely onto the next question I really had for you, which was, you know, in this world, you see everything is trying to be an equal pegging and everyone's integrated. And this idea of women's only spaces and women only is sort of being phased out. 
So why do you think it is important that we hold on to initiatives where women, only women can work together on projects? Well, it's, it's empowering to work mm. as we do in Focus and Sisters on Air with our ladies-only teams. It really is. And women do work better with other women. It's a fact, I think, that the world is catching up with. And Islam introduced this concept many centuries ago. But in the recent past, uh, with the women-only spaces springing up, also here in the Western world, it is being realized that it's about working, let's say, in an, in an, in an environment um, in comfort and privacy, among other things. And it does bring out the best in, best in us. So, yes, mm -hmm. I feel it's important to promote this way of working. Oh, excellent. And I think, um, I think it's really important now that people go ahead and listen to these wonderful shows. And before we end, I'd love to know what one of your favorite episodes is or a show that you think that listeners should really go back and listen to in the back catalog. <laughs> this is always difficult to answer, obviously, because <laughs> I genuinely uh, like all our shows. Um, but I feel our early shows, which was which were researched and written and produced, within days if not hours were were quite exceptional i feel because we were so new um but in those days we had the we were new to sound as well you know recording and sound yeah. so the old recordings lacked in that department but i feel quite attached to the early shows um because they were produced under such sort of not knowing really what we had to do sort of a thing. But if I'm to pick, if I have to pick uh, some shows, then I'll, if I, I think I'll try to be a little bit fair and perhaps pick a couple of shows recorded in the, because we are a recorded show in the last mm -hmm. six months, let's say. So both Faith in Focus and Sisters on Air did an episode each on, um, in response to a news item uh, about research done by England hockey player, Tess Howard, on how sport, sporting clothes are keeping young girls away from participating. So it was quite quite a big news and it was well covered. So we did a show, um, Faith and Focus show, it was called Women in Sports and the Sisters on Air episode was called Women's Sports Uniform. So I'll pick those and I would like, to, you know, pe if people are interested to go on our SoundCloud and, um, have a listen to those. I thought they were they were quite interesting shows. Excellent. I hope do our listeners do go ahead and listen back if they already haven't. So thank you so much for joining us today on the Drive Time Show and uh, good luck with all the future recordings. Thank you, Faiza. Thank you. That was uh, Shamin Butt. She's head producer of Faith in Focus and sister on AS shows. So you've heard uh, from her. Um, in the inauguration of the radio, we just heard His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, the head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, he has said that the voice of Islam will manifest the fact that Islam is a religion that teaches Muslims in all countries, in all eras, to join together with the different groups in their societies in an effort to unite mankind in peace and to help their nations prosper and flourish. Peace, of course, is an essential part of Islam. The name given by Allah to this religion, according to the Holy Quran, is an Arabic word which literally means obedience and peace. Islam, word Islam, is derived from the Arabic root salama, 
peace, purity, submission, and obedience. So Islam would mean the path of those who are obedient to Allah and who establish peace with him and his creatures. And that brings us to the very apt title, Pathway to Peace Show, which airs every Sunday at 7. And we got uh, the head producer of the Pathway to Peace Show uh, with us. Uh, and we'll be speaking to him, Kaleem Anwar. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, peace be on you. Welcome to our show today. Welcome, Islam. Thank you for having me. Uh, yes, Klim, uh, it's nice to hear from you. So can you tell us about Pathway to Peace show and how it came to be and how it has evolved over the eight years of airing? Y- yes, absolutely. So you, you correctly mentioned um, uh, His, uh, His Holiness, Hazrat Mr. Masur Ahmed, uh, when his sort of inauguration speech mentioned the, the purpose of Voice of Islam. What was quite interesting that it was back in, uh, when obviously around that time where new ideas for programs were, were sort of coming to the fruition and there was a book that was uh, published in 2012 um, I say it's a book but rather it was a collection of speeches addresses uh, and letters to world leaders um, delivered by His Holiness the book itself is called World Crisis and the Pathway to Peace so you can see it's the latter part of that book title Pathway to Peace which the show adopted and, and initially, when um, so, so you're right, so when it first uh, aired uh, the show, it primarily focused on this book because, as I mentioned, there's numerous speeches delivered by His Holiness um, on, on various topics, you know, from the global crisis, um, you know, the threat of nuclear war, speeches that he's delivered over the last 20 years. Very interestingly, in this book were actual letters, letters that he himself um, wrote to world leaders. Uh, we're talking to you know the uh, prime, uh, the president of the United States, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, to, to, to the holiness Pope Benedict, uh, prime minister of kind of various various world leaders, sort of highlighting you know the the, the need for for sort of, you know reconciling with one another, you know to you know act, work in the, in the name of in the spirit of peace. So the show really focused on this book, but we found after you know when we. Possibly after a couple of months of airing, um, we thought, okay, but the show's called Pathway to Peace, and, and there are many types of peace. And really what sort of what made us sort of think about this was is another fascinating book. Uh, once again, it was actually a speech, um, previously it was obviously documented in book form, called Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues. And this was actually a speech delivered by the fourth caliph, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed. Um, and this was the occasion of the, the centenary uh, jubilee of the, of the Amdi Muslim community. And that book, uh, for, for readers who may, may not be aware of it, if you if you go to the contents of that book, it's a, a fabulous, fabulous way how it's been structured. Each chapter is sort of focusing on achieving economic peace, achieving political peace, or achieving inner peace. So it really gives a really nice sort of a, a journey uh, through the various types of peace. And so the show has really become almost a, a sort of a combination of these two key sources, these two key texts which really inspire us to keep producing new content every week. So how do you pick uh, the topics? And, uh, you know, every week you have to pick a, pick a new topic. Uh, are you ever yeah. worried about, uh, you know, uh, what topic yeah. we should be from the, especially you have to give the Islamic yeah. perspective as well? Yeah, I think, yeah, good, good point. It's a good point. You're right, because you think, obviously, you take on a topic every week. As you mentioned, we try to take on a new challenge or a new, a new problem that's, you know, opposing society. Uh, and as I mentioned before, the, you know, we, we look at various from various angles, you know, social peace or political peace. But, um, but really, if you think about it, with the, with the current affairs, the news, the news agenda, there's something there that, that Islam sort of has a perspective on, it sort of relates to, has a view on. 
take for example, you know, possibly in the last few weeks, you know, the Bank of England, the Bank of England, sort of, you know, announces this sort of the latest interest rate hike, or, or there's something, there's some sort of policy that's come out from a think tank that talks about you know, how do we deal with inequality within society in, in various things. And then you think you you look for inspiration within the Holy Quran and and, and the various sort of addresses speeches of of of, of the, the Khalifa of the Jamaat, and you find, for example, um, where what are Islam's perspectives on this? You know, there are various ideas that have come about of a, of, of a notion of a wealth tax. Okay, you look at that where it's essentially sort of a, a you know a tax on people's sort of savings, and so you look at sort of what what does Islam say? It does have a, it sort of it contains some sort of an economic angle where we have a fifth pillar of Islam about zakat, which is essentially, you know, giving a percentage of, 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 of you know, of, of one's wealth um, to in, 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 you know, for the cause of, of, of society, to betterment of society. So there's always a perspective on things, and I think it's quite fascinating um, that each week we sort of look at what the agenda is uh, and think, well, what's actually happening in the news? I'll, just to let you know, just sort of a heads up for this Sunday show, there's a lot in the news about, about anxiety, the next generation, and, and possibly even older, actually feeling a lot more anxious these days. So we look at the inspiration within the Quran as to what does, what does the Quran say about that, about achieving that sort of inner peace? Uh, Kalim, you know, this, uh, His Holiness had mentioned uh, that, that we need to take pathways to peace as we sit on the brink of global conflict. Is this something you cover in your shows? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it is remarkable how, I would say, over the last, literally the last two decades, his Holiness, Hazrat has spoken on numerous occasions um, and has, has, has been warning, has been warning sort of mankind, the whole, you know, whole society about, you know, if we do not sort of, you know, really reflect on, on sort of the issues that are taking place, the injustices that are taking place, you know, this should serve as a wake-up call. And, and we think like now, and I, I've, you know, I've attended some of his addresses two decades ago, I take had some guests with me, and they were quite. Um, at the time, they they were sort of they couldn't believe it, thinking even even sort of two decades ago, His Holiness was warning about the prospect of world war, and the guests that I brought with me thought, no, that's surely that's not that's not possible, and yet the very same guests, you know, two decades on, you think about the current situation, you know, His Holiness has really drawn you know just, you know the whole of sort of society to to really a simplistic message, but such a powerful message that if one does not sort of take care of the rights of, of their fellow, you know, their fellow, you know, being, basically human being, their fellow brother, their fellow society, and then and on the other side of that, fulfilling the rights that they owe towards towards their creator, you know, they, they, that is the solution to remedy a lot of the problems. And it's such, I find it so fascinating that some, the, such a, a message such as that had such, um, how can I say, such major sort of ramifications, consequences, if if acted upon. Okay, Kaleem, one difficult question now to you. Yeah. Inner peace, you know, how how can we achieve that in one minute? Oh, gosh. <laughs> in one minute? All, all I would say is um, there's a fascinating verse in the Quran, which is many times mentioned, I think, in all the shows. Um, and this is, that it's in the remembrance of God that the hearts find comfort. And I feel as if that is the key. To, to achieving that state of inner peace. That's great, great answer. So, one last question. What has been one of your favorite shows to produce or do you recommend uh, to people to listen back uh, to that? It's a tough one because, yeah, as you mentioned, over the last eight years, there's been some fantastic shows with fantastic presenters who, from all walks of life, um, they're lawyers, you know, bankers, teachers, you know, work in the IT profession, their mothers, fathers, or may not, may not be married, but 
but they all give a fascinating insight from their lived experience. I, I mentioned that because it was a show, I think just given the current state of affairs, it was a, a, a phenomenal show that first aired on the, on the 26th of November, uh, 2023. The title of the show was Establishing Truth, a Prerequisite for, for Peace. Um, it was a show that was presented by two of our presenters, uh, Sabri Ekbal and Melissa Amadi. And it gave a really, if, you, if one listens to that, it sort of reflects on, on the sort of the way the news is presented. Um, and, and it sort of comes back to the point of Voice of Islam, but I think one of the, the, the great facets of Voice of Islam, that it really has an unbiased perspective because it really seeks to bring out what is the truth. What, what you know, what, you know, it plays to both sides of the argument. And that show really did sort of highlight that we, we, you know, people are sort of, they're beginning to realize now that the biases that are creeping in, into the various uh, news streams. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Kaleem, uh, for joining us uh, this afternoon. And I hope that, uh, you know, people would be interested and would listen um, to this particular program as well uh, and uh, regularly listen to your program, Pathways to Peace. I uh, wish you success in your programs and thank you for joining us again. No, thank you. So this was uh, Kaleem Anwar is head, of, uh, the produ- uh, head producer of the Pathway to Peace show and he was talking to us um, telling us about his experience how um, yeah, Voice of Islam has evolved over the last eight years and uh, every day you know we see new, new progress and new um, um, sort of uh, developments and uh, we are progressing because the, the Jamaat Ahmadiyya community in the whole world is not only established, but every day we see the new progress. And Voice of Islam is one voice we can hear, uh, which is going, uh, you know, around the world 24 hours a day. Uh, Voice of Islam isn't aimed at just Muslims, as His Holiness has said in the inauguration of the station. He said that the Voice of Islam will manifest the fact that Islam is a religion that teaches Muslims in all countries in all eras to join together with the different groups in their societies in an effort to unite mankind in peace and to help their nations prosper and flourish. Certainly, Islam is that religion which on the basis of its religious teachings and traditions calls on Muslims to integrate in the very best possible way into their local societies. Uh, we have to remember that pr- the promised Messiah, upon whom we peace, who is the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, came to revive the true teachings of Islam, and he was told his message was to spread to the corners of the earth. And therefore, on the invention of the phonograph, he got his companions to record recitations of the Holy Quran, a Persian poem, and some brief commentary of chapter Al-Asr. Um, so, th- this, this uh, you know, he wrote... Uh, the following po- poetic verse in that, uh, uh, which is men- mentioned in one of the books, it says, This voice is coming from the phonograph, seeking God from the heart, not through boasting and pomposity. We do have our uh, next guest, who is Dr. Hasham Ahmed. He's the head producer of the Al Hakam Inspire podcast. We welcome him on the show. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Hasham. Thanks for joining us today. Okay, Hasham, uh, being a producer of this Al Hakam inspired podcast, this is something I think it's uh, something recent addition to the playlist. What kind of topics do you cover? Yeah, Jazakallah. So this uh, podcast was started in 2022 and it has its own platform. It's available on YouTube and all podcasting platforms. So uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music. 
Um, and you can find everything if you tag in Al Hakam Inspire, uh, and you can search that on YouTube and all the podcasting platforms to follow. The, uh, the podcast itself is a show which explores inspiring research ideas across various secular fields, so science, medicine, history, politics, religion, and even economics. And where applicable, we like to discuss with um, our guests about the kind of secular knowledge and then when they find an element which links to Islam or anything relating to spirituality, uh, we discuss that in a lot of detail. Um, It has become a podcast or a show which has been, our guests have kind of shared their own reflections on, um, you know, verses of the Quran, their inspiration, faith-inspiring incidences with relation to um, Khilafat, Khilafat Ahmadiyya, and we have a whole host of Ahmadi and non-Ahmadi guests, uh, Muslim and non-Muslim guests on our show. So, talking of Khilafat, Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmadi, um, current head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, uh, may Allah be his helper, he has guided you to set this podcast up. Can you tell us why and what your specific targets are? Yeah, absolutely. So, under the guidance of Hazrat uh, Khalifa Tumasi, uh, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, we've um, set up this podcast and focused it more towards uh, gaining secular knowledge. And that's across all the kind of various um, fields that we talked about, you know, not just science, but um, medicine, history, economics, politics. And he actually gave specific guidance to us when we were setting up the initial podcast that we as presenters should not only um, bring on the guests, but we should enhance our own knowledge uh, by reading the kind of the commentary of the the five volume commentary of of the Holy Quran, uh, trying to enhance our knowledge so that we can, you know, get into deeper conversations to really bring, enrich the the listeners with with the maximum amount of knowledge possible. Um, and he, Alhamdulillah, our guests have been across the border. He's also advised us to focus on the bank of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Alhamdulillah, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is widespread throughout the entire world, and there are many specialists in their in their fields. Um, so we've just touched the tip of the iceberg, and we're making our progress towards, um, you know, uh, understanding and acting upon the words and guidance of Hazrat uh, Khalifa Masih. It would be interesting to find out, what, you know, who are your guests, any specific guests you would like to mention? Yeah, absolutely. So we've had a lot of internal, when I say internal, I mean Ahmadi Muslim guests as well as external guests. And some of our external guests have been, for example, Peter Oborn, who's a broadcasting journalist. Um, we've had uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who is a world-renowned economics professor. We've had uh, Dr. Craig Considine, who's a professor in... Um, sociology and religious education, and uh, he's well known in his field. We also have many um, high-profile Ahmadi Muslim guests who are successful in their field. So, for example, Majib Ajaz, who's a battery systems engineer, and we did a fantastic episode with him um, regarding, you know, his uh, view for the future with regards to um, battery uh, engineering and the formation in electric vehicles. So we've had some fantastic guests. We've had um, neurosurgeons, uh, general surgeons, scientists, social scientists, historians and politics. And our latest episode was with um, Amjad Mahmoud Khan, who is a top lawyer and law professor in the U.S. And he discusses his faith-inspiring journey, as well as human rights and law, which is uh, incredibly relevant with with regards to today's um, ongoing issues, uh, conflicts around the world with regards to Palestine and uh, Israel, as well as Ukraine and Russia. Must be very interesting programs. So, what feedback have you received on this exciting new podcast? And what are, what 
are your plans going forward? Alhamdulillah, the, by the grace of God, the feedback has been very positive, particularly um, Muslim youth have found this very engaging. They feel that they've learned a lot. The podcast is very diverse, so it's not just one aspect. It's not just. It's one of these shows where you can open up the playlist and pick something that that is interesting to you and start listening, and you'll probably learn something, as well as some element of spiritual understanding as well. For example, even with our external guest, Jeffrey Sachs, we engaged with him about his thoughts on, on verses of the Holy Quran and, and, and things like that. In, inshallah, for the future, we're planning to um, progress and uh, enhance the podcast. We have a variety of kind of technicalities. The podcast is promoted on social media heavily as well, and we've had some fantastic plays with um, reels going viral and um, a lot of um, information getting out there. And we're planning to... Really, we've got a fantastic new episode. Again, highlights the diversity of the show. We have a fantastic episode coming on coffee. You know, how to make the perfect brew, the history of coffee. Um, so it, it, it's a good example to highlight the diversity of the podcast. And of course, the episodes are played on the Voice of Islam radio. That's uh, very interesting. I'm, I'm sure uh, it would interest. Um, I, I personally can't take coffee because it gives me migraine. But of course, there are so many people who would be interested in that. Uh, well, um, my last question would be what, uh, you know, which program is your favorite episode and um, which one would you recommend listeners to go back and listen to? Uh, that's a tough one. We've done, alhamdulillah, by the grace of God, we've done 20 episodes. Uh, each episode varies from 40 minutes to, uh, you know, almost hitting one hour. And we're discussing various aspects. I definitely, definitely feel that one of our first episodes we did with um, Mujib Ajaz, who's the CEO of Our Next Energy, that was an incredibly inspiring episode where he, you know, wholeheartedly put his hand a hand in his heart and said my success and everything is on is to do with my faith you know it's really my faith which has guided me god has guided me towards you know forming this inspiring company this new design for a battery uh and there's a lot of information there one of my other favorite ones is um, ophthalmology which is eyesight and improving vision with dr Hassan khan um he's a consultant ophthalmologist in the u.s um and it is a fantastic discussion about how the eyes work and um, the history behind the eyes and also the kind of the um, golden age of Islam when uh, Muslim scientists were researching and came up with the whole field of optics and uh, took it took it to another level. So there are some fantastic um, episodes out there. I just advise all listeners, if you want to catch up, uh, search Al-Hakam Inspire wherever you can on YouTube or your podcasting platforms. You'll find the episodes and hopefully be able to follow us from there. Thank you very much, Dr. Sham. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you, and uh, I hope uh, we wish uh, this uh, program. Uh, obviously, it's a very, very interesting program, it looks like, and uh, it is going to be very successful. Thank you for joining us uh, and sharing your experience. I mean, thank you very much. Eight years, they, they have just flew by so quickly, and initially, when you look at in the beginning of Voice of Islam, you see that we start with a few programs and then. And by the grace of Allah, we have so many different programs running 24-7. And with more and more people leaving religion or coming under negative illusions about what faith is, inviting people to listen to what Islam has to say on current and contemporary issues is no easy task. But 
the challenge is something we are here at Voice Islam. We, we, we are here to um, take on the challenge and answer those questions. And the aims of the station have been clearly set up by His Holiness when he said in the radio inauguration, and I, I quote, The purpose of the Voice of Islam is to inform people of the true teachings of Islam and to make it abundantly clear that Islam's teachings perfectly conform and relate to the needs of every era and every person, end quote. And with that in mind, we always are looking at new shows and new ideas. And one such new show you can catch is the Ladies Poets for Peace show. And we will be speaking to Dr. Bushra Khan, who um, is the head producer for Poets for Peace. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Walaikum assalam wa rahmatullah, peace be upon you. Um, Bush, uh, Dr. Bushra Khan, my first question to you is, um, Poets for Peace is a popular Voice of Islam show. Why did you decide to make a ladies-only show team for this show? <laughs> yes, that's a key question. A ladies-only Poets for Peace show, believe me, has turned out to be really a wonderful idea because it provides an exclusive platform to flourish and showcase our immense feminine potential. And it creates a sense of belonging for them and a sense of teamship for, uh, for a community of female poets. And they bring with them all the diversity of their skills. And they all work with such cohesive efforts towards, you know, a common sublime cause. And that's really great. And poetry uh, is a medium of expression which has a profound effect on human emotions. And... The, the beautiful thing is that the naturally ingrained tenderness and sensitivity, uh, which, has, uh, which is a God-given I mean, faculty in the feminine nature, it blends very well with poetic expression. Okay, thank you. Um, my my second question is, was it a lot of work to record the first show? And uh, how are you preparing for further shows in the future? The first show was no doubt very, very challenging because laying down the foundational concept and creating a global team and then communicating with them and then, uh, uh, you know, uh, deputing roles and training and then synchronizing the ideas. And then because I'm by nature a perfectionist, I wanted to create something very unique. So to craft an innovative and artistic uh, show and uh, you know uh, the designing formatting and uh, and the different segments because it's not a, a straightforward show we have three segments the symphony segments had the po poetic uh, uh, poetry of uh, i mean contributors from all over the world and the second is viewpoint segment in which the theme of the show we invite a guest an expert and uh, there is an interaction a discussion and then there's the third one is an inspirational segment in which uh, which starts with a verse from the holy quran which is relevant to a theme and which is followed by a, a extract a few verses of a poem of either the promised messiah or one of his caliphs and uh, which is related to a theme and then there's the explanation so it's a very i mean uh, 
uh, I mean, well-crafted, I mean, I would say, and there are so many, uh, uh, I mean, constituents that we, uh, and then to put them together, and then, you know, even in the intervals, we have that those nature sounds, and I mean, it's, uh, when you listen to it, I mean, you feel that this is something like, you know, somebody is, uh, I mean, like, a, a kind of a artistic specimen sort of a thing. Hmm. How how can we use poetry as a medium of expression when it comes to faith? What's your opinion? My opinion is very, very highly positive about it because faith is a highly sensitive matter and a, it's a matter of the heart. And poetry with its also has a powerful effect on human emotions and that makes it a profound medium to convey divine truths and spiritual messages and if you look over the history of religion there have been eminent examples of poetry being used to convey uh, spiritual messages and divine truths and uh, our, our topics uh, are, as I told you are inspired by Quranic verses and inspirational poems so I think they, they blend, blend very well together Mm-hmm. Um, next question, I think I, I'll do that because uh, I'm I'm a poet, although I, I write uh, poetry in Urdu. But there are mm-hmm. l- lots of people out there who would who enjoy poetry, listening to it, but they do want to develop their skills. How can they do that? Some tips from you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, this is, uh, believe me, one of my main missions because uh, this uh, show... Uh, you know, I have so many teenagers and uh, young girls in my show and they are doing very important vital roles and I take a lot of interest because, you know, they are our future, actually. They are the future of Ahmadiyya, they are the future of Islam. So I focus on them to train them. So whoever is interested, who even has never tried poetry, it, they're most welcome that, uh, I mean, uh, we can train them and, you know, uh, we we really um, start from the scratch. It's not that if you're a very expert poet only, then you can contribute. No, because I even uh, sometimes uh, the girls send me, they tell me, if you kindly just brush up or edit a bit, you know, and I mm, uh, do a lot of work with their poems to shape them up because that's part of the training. I, I'm trying to develop their writing skills and their poetry expression. So that's one of my very, very important aims to train the younger generation to come forward, to express, to use poetry as an expression to spread our universal message of peace of Islam uh, to the world in an attractive format. Because nowadays people are always running short of time they don't have time to read long books and all that you know prose so poetry is compact is full of emotion is attractive has rhythm and rhyme so it goes right into the heart do you so thi- i think it's the it's an idle weapon do you think that poetry um is a skill you are born with or can you train it to it can be uh, trained to people i think it is both ways because, but even if you are not born with it, I mean, uh, really, we we don't sometimes realize it. It uh, it you know comes on the surface at a certain age. But I think people who the only thing is I believe is enthusiasm, 
and interest. If you have that, you can definitely step in and, I mean, uh, we have uh, all the team, we can help uh, people who are uh, interested. So it's, we, we are always, you know, welcoming new poets. Rather, I'm encouraging. And we have representation, mashallah, in all the five continents. Uh, and uh, people are really connecting so well. And they really enjoy uh, that feeling of togetherness that we are a global community. So, uh, last question. How can people get involved with the Poets for Peace show? Yeah, yeah. As I said, that they are most welcome. I mean, they can uh, contact me on my email uh, uh, if they are interested in any uh, role as a poet or in the uh, uh, audio editing or in for because there's there are interviews also if they they want to do interview any uh, kind of role uh, something to do with our show they can contact me on my voice of islam email bushra dot khan b u b u s h r a dot K-H-A-N, Bushra.Khan, at voiceofislam.co.uk. Okay, um, Jazakumullah, and may Allah bless you for um, the show you you are um, presenting, and uh, may God enable you um, to serve better um, in the future, um, in the next year. Um, eight years have already passed, and we're starting with the new year from today. Um, what would you like Thank to you. Say? I have one last question. I would like to ask you. Know the poetry by uh, by our the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim Community, Hazrat Sihim um, uh, on whom be peace uh, and the Khulafa, um, uh, definitely the uh, second caliph and uh, the uh, fourth caliph. They are like very known uh, with a very high class poetry. So, do we have a sort of? Uh, is there any attempt to? not simply translate but translate into English poetry um, their poetry into, yeah, into yeah. kind, kind uh, of poetry uh, this, this is a very very vital question actually I uh, this, uh, as I told you there's an inspirational segment which starts with a verse of the Holy Quran and the next is either a poem from uh, the promised Messiah peace be upon him or one of his uh, caliphs so this is the pattern which we are following four shows already broadcast and now we are working on another series of three episodes by the grace of allah what uh, and actually duras mean the the poetry of the promised messiah already has a printed uh, a published version but um, the other poems what i do is i first translate myself and there there is one uh, missionary um, which has been deputed uh, to poets of peace to kind of check uh, my translation. I mean, they just go through it and they, if, if it's exact and it's to the point and I mean, the meaning is being conveyed. So they just then, uh, then they forward me back and uh, then, I mean, it has to go through all those official procedures and only then and then I send to the, the girl who sings it and uh, it's like a song, she sings it. And then there is uh, another one uh, of a member, she does the explanation of those verses. So it's a very well, um, uh, I mean, uh, well-formatted way we do it by the grace of Allah, alhamdulillah. 
Um, I I have I, I just said uh, I'm coming from a poetry session just now, and uh, there I found out that uh, you know the second caliph, Hazrat Mirza Bishiruddin Mahmud Ahmed. I I read one of his quotations, and I think I, I can just translate for the uh, benefit of all because it was interesting for me to to read yes, that please. as well. And it has been taken from the the daily Al Fazl, thirteenth uh, of June, nineteen nineteen, and he he says in that that I have been told in a dream yes. that the signs of life of nations, one of the signs of the life of nations, is to say uh, uh, the couplets, the to to say poetry, to do poetry, and I would advise my um, community to say um, poetry, to, to write poems. I like poems. And in my dream, I have been told that I should start a campaign to tell the members of my community to, to get involved into poetry. Isn't it interesting? Not only interesting, believe me, God bless you for that. That I mean, this is like you've offered a gem. Can you please give me some reference, or can you just uh, quote that the original the the words? Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll, I'll send it to uh, Faiza Mirza. She's uh, our producer. I'll, I'll just uh, quote. Please, uh, uh, Faiza is in touch with me. <laughs> Kindly tell her to convey. I'm very much interested, and this is. This is like something sublime uh, you have pointed out. I mean, like, I really didn't know. I mean, this is a blessed. I feel more and more blessed that okay. I, uh, God, uh, God has given me Thank this Thank you, uh, Dr. Bushra. I, I think we'll have to leave there. We, we had lost our uh, last guest, but uh, he's here now. Nasir Khan, he's our... Uh, um, next producer, uh, who is a science producer, will be inviting her. Thank you, Dr. Bushra Khan, for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, we, we have the um, next guest here, Nasir, read physics and space science at UCL. He has been a keen interest in philosophy, history, religion, and of course science, and is part of the Tire Foundation Research Committee. And welcome, uh, Nasir Khan. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Walaikum salam, rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Thank you for uh, having me um, join the show. I'm sorry I I missed the call earlier because we're driving. I'm with my son, and we're driving through the uh, the Rockies in Colorado to go skiing. Oh, that's fine. No worries. I hope you have good signal. My first question to you is: if you can tell us about the science show and why it's important to air this on an Islamic radio station. Um, I think. Uh, the, the, uh, if I can change the question itself just by a little bit. Yes, go for it. Um, I, I, I heard the fourth Khalifa in one uh, question and answer session. He was asked a question, which was, what is the difference between religious knowledge and secular knowledge? And he answered nothing. So okay. the Quran itself repeatedly um, reminds Muslims to study nature and look at the alternation of the days and the nights and um, ponder over it and and do research so that we can understand by understanding the creation we can understand the creator better so again the fourth Khalifa a lovely phrase that he came up with was that um, if if um, if you love the art then you must love the artist 
Yes. So by studying science, it not only benefits humanity, but also enhances our own understanding of, um, you know, religion and spirituality. Yes, Jazakum. Then my second question is, what kind of topics have you covered in the past and how do you decide on what to cover? How do you decide your topics? So uh, there are two ways that we decide them. There are traditionally interesting subjects. One is um, the nature of the universe itself, how it started, cosmology, the Big Bang Theory and how it developed and how we arrived at uh, a, a planet that we live on that can sustain life. The other, the other um, type of questions that we ask and, 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 and talk about are how life came about and evolved in humanity today, right? So those are, are very, you know, the large questions that most people ask, scientists and religious people, um, you know, throughout history they've asked those questions. So the Quran gives us an, a lot of guidance on these particular subjects and science does provide the real world proof and it's also interesting to find out if the narrative provided by the Quran is in fact accurate right hmm. or, or not so yes. so so far in my experience and and all of the research that I've done I've not found a single flaw and I've tried I really have and not a single flaw can I can I discover in, in that book, particularly with respect to science. The other type of program we do are current uh, things which are currently um, pertinent to humanity. So recently it's been, you know, COVID, um, pandemics, the nature of uh, how we are interacting with, with uh, you know, the environment around us and the effect that we're having on the seas, on the sky, on 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 the environment in general so those are those subjects as well so it's not just you know the big philosophical questions it is day-to-day -day questions hmm. can you tell us about some of the guests who you've spoken to in the past on the show well, we've had a very wide variety of uh, scientists and uh, and and an expert. So um, one that I remember very well is the person. Um, he uh, he works at uh, the University of Surrey and pioneered uh, 5G. So I'm here in America. I've just finished a project rolling out 5G to the whole country, and but he actually pioneered the technology. So we took a very deep dive into the physics of it and what it means. So that was a, a recent discussion. We've had um, other, many other scientists on. Uh, there's one notable one. She's an Ahmadi, an Ahmadi Muslim, and uh, works with the Jet Propulsion Lab at NASA and also for National Geographic, um, searching for exoplanets. Exoplanets are Earth-like planets um, in, in the cosmos that may be able to sustain life. Yeah. Can you just tell us um, within 20 seconds what's coming up for the science show in 2024? 20 seconds. So, so we're working on we're working on the uh, on 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 the structure of it. But there are some very interesting developments, particularly in the areas of photosynthesis and um, and and uh, you know the, the quantum organic components that seem to be. Uh, being observed in nature so that's very very interesting i know it sounds very technical but it is extraordinary um so these are very new developments in science 
So we, we look at those and we then look at the grant, see if there is anything that it mentions about these things. Oh, okay. And that, to, yeah. much, to my surprise, it does. Okay, thank you, Nasir Khan. Thank you um, for um, coming to the show. And I would just like to say stay tuned into Voice Clown this year and beyond. We enjoy your company and we hope you enjoy ours in the future. Thank you very much.